Our gracious God, we thank you indeed for your word to us, which is light and life. But as we come to this uh, passage of uh, uh, judgment, a passage that is most likely unfamiliar, passage that may jar a little bit with our thinking, uh, we pray that you'll open our eyes not only to understand but to respond rightly to your word, that we may walk in its light and for the glory of your Son. Amen. Well, for those of you old enough to remember, September 11 was almost unthinkable. To imagine that the world's great superpower, maybe not quite at the height of its strength, but still pretty strong, could be attacked right in its very heart. The Pentagon building, the World Trade Towers, and so on. It was astonishing. And those of you old enough to remember, like me, I saw the second plane go into the building, and we were gripped, stunned, amazed at this uh, astonishing attack right at the heart of the world's power. Those buildings particularly reeked of human power, prestige, honor, dignity, and glory. To attack the Pentagon, to attack the World Trade Towers. And the reverberations of that, now what is it, 14 years later, are still reverberating and probably will do so for years and years to come. The world in which we live and for decades and centuries past, it's not always easy to understand and read the activity of God in the world. Some Christians in September, after September 11, in its aftermath, made statements of judgment against the United States of America for its immorality on various issues such as guns or abortion or sexuality. In some ways, it's easier to confine the thinking of God in our heart, in our life, or in our church, perhaps, to think of God saving us and making us into the image of Christ. But when we come out and think in the world, it's not always easy. Not always easy to understand, is God active at all? And if he is, how do we read that? How do we see the sovereignty of God in our world that seems, in a way, to be full of such evil events or random events? What's God's view on the nations? What's God's view on things like September 11. Well, I can't claim to give you answers to those precise questions from Nahum 2 and 3, but nonetheless, in general, he makes some lessons that are, I think, important for us as we try to read the sovereignty of God and human power in our world. Uh, As you will have seen, was it last week or the week before, uh, from Nahum 1, uh, we are dealing with a prophet who is round about 660 BC, something like that. It seems. And it seems that he has lessons as he speaks God's word into a world full of political superpowers and jostling for power and so on. Nahum is not merely a political commentator, so we're not reading here the equivalent of something in the Wall Street Journal, for example, or the Washington Post or the Times of London, a sort of political comment. We're reading here God's word about the events of the 7th century BC. And uh, it's important to therefore know a little bit of background. And whilst I don't want to bore you with 
too much detail, the basics that we need to know would be something like this. Instead of the United States of America, there was another world superpower. It's a little bit hard to imagine. But in 660 BC, the United States of America wasn't united and uh, not a power. And the world superpower of that time was Assyria. Assyria, not Syria that we know today, a country that's now long gone. And at this point, in about the 660s BC, Assyria reached the height of its power and glory. Uh, Sixty years before, it had conquered little Israel in the north and other surrounding tiny countries as well. So Assyria is a country that's addressed in the Bible and spoken about numerous times through the Old Testament. And it had been really on the rise since about 740s BC. But by the time that Nahum speaks, it had conquered Egypt. And that was no mean feat. Egypt was a vast empire of its own. Another great superpower, basically. And now Assyria claimed the right to be unchallenged as number one in the world. And in particular, in 663, maybe just a few years before Nahum spoke, it had conquered the capital of Egypt, then not Cairo, but Thebes, much further south, which was regarded as impregnable, basically in a way a glorious capital of Egypt had been for 1,400 years, and Assyria had conquered it. Down in what do we know today to be Luxor and Karnak, for example, where the Temple of Gods and the Valley of the Kings are, 300 miles south of Cairo today, but defeated by the great Ashurbanipal of Assyria. So that's the background. That's the context for understanding these words of Nahum. We can imagine that at 660 BC or just after, after Thebes had just been recently conquered, Assyria crowned the number one, you can imagine them all singing, rule Assyria, Assyria rules the waves, Syrians never, never, never shall be slaves. They ruled alone. They had no rival as the world superpower. Their capital city at this particular time Nineveh, that great, great, massive city. And it boasted in the Assyrian victories. Of course they would. They would have had victory parades. They would have had inscriptions and monuments and tablets and all those sorts of things. Just like today, really. The inscriptions of Ashurbanipal's victories, some of them are still found in museums around Europe. Reliefs on the walls. Some of those... uh, Uh, were big stone lions to guard the palace of Nineveh at this time. They had eight miles of defensive wall around their capital city that was 25 to 60 feet high and a moat going round. This Nineveh, this great, great capital city, this was a place to be reckoned with. They had the ancient forms of twin towers and statues of liberty and pentagons and so on, the ancient variations, if you like, on a modern theme, a place to be reckoned with. The lion was their symbol, lion statues, massive things guarding the entrances to Nineveh. And in contrast, the sort of pipsqueak, mouse-like voice of Nahum the prophet. He spoke in protest 
God's word. I guess that Nineveh would have totally ignored him. I doubt that Nahum would have even been a footnote in their newspaper. I'm not even sure, actually, that Nahum really ever went there. Because in a way, his word about Nineveh and about Assyria is really a word for the people of God, though it's addressed to Assyria. But as so often with the Old Testament prophets, when they speak to another nation, it's really for the benefit of the people of God to put things in context. And Nahum's message is basically, Assyria will fall and soon. Now we live hundreds of years later, we know this happened, but we need to try and put ourselves right into the midst of what's going on. Assyria was at the peak of its power, unchallenged in the world. To consider that Assyria would soon be brought to nothing is astonishing, unbelievable. But that's what the message of Nahum is all about. And you can imagine poor Mrs. Nahum must have thought her husband was a little bit mad to say these words that seemed so unlikely. And maybe the friends of Nahum sort of abandoned him and thought he was a sort of slapstick comedian or something like that. But Nahum was serious, not because he was politically astute. He was serious because he was speaking God's word into his world. These two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, are vivid and in a way a bit jarring as they describe the battle. They are scathing in their denunciation of the world's superpower. And they also drip with sarcastic mockery of some of the boasts and pride of Assyria. The attack on on Nineveh, its capital, is announced in verse 1. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. They're short, urgent things. There's a sense here of, come on, quick, quick, quick. We are under attack here. And it mentions in verse 3, the mighty men, their shields are red. Uh, They're the Babylonians who were dressed in red, apparently in battle. And what eventually did happen, uh, another 50 years after this, The Babylonians with the Medes from what is Iran today joining together as a mighty army did bring down Nineveh and did bring down Assyria towards the end of the 600s BC. And what's happening here is that Nahum is warning Assyria, come on, guard yourself. But he's not gone there to warn them. There's an element of mockery through these words, elements of irony and humor almost. As I say, he's not just a political analyst. He's not warning them to increase their defense budget, but rather speaking God's word. And he's really there reminding his people, God's people, the people of Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital, a small, insignificant nation at this time. He's warning them and telling them, sorry, not warning, telling them what God is doing in the world. Why is God doing this? Why is God orchestrating this attack against the world's superpower? For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob in verse 2 and the majesty of Israel. Jacob, or his other name was Israel, stands for the people of God. Now half of them or more have gone off into exile already to Assyria. That is, they've been scattered already into exile. Only Judah, that tribe, remains around Jerusalem. 
But what he's saying is the Lord is going to restore the majesty of his people. Plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. That plunderer was Assyria. And now it will receive its comeuppance under God's mighty hand. But it's not just God acting out of love for his people. Because what the Lord is doing is restoring the majesty of Jacob and Israel. Not human majesty or human glory. What God is doing, as we see echoed all the way through the prophets and elsewhere in the Old Testament, is that God is restoring his own majesty by restoring his people. And that's what God is on about. For the sake of his own reputation in the world. The shield of his, that is God's mighty men. Uh, This is a bit astonishing in a way. Because the mighty men being spoken of, as it turns out 50 years later in history, are the mighty men of Babylon and Media, who are pagans. They're not God's people by way of personal faith. But God raises them up, as he says in other prophets as well, like Habakkuk. God will raise up a pagan army to act for him. And that's what's going on. The his in verse 3 is God's. Soldiers clothed in scarlet. It may be a reference to blood already dripping, but it's apparently what the Babylonians wore. The chariots coming with flashing metal on the day he musters them. It's God who's mustering them. Now, of course, a political commentator in the 610s BC, when they see the Babylonians suddenly rise up under this mighty Nebuchadnezzar and begin to conquer mighty, mighty Assyria, major cities tumbling year after year, including Nineveh, They would have interpreted this humanly, politically. But what Nahum is doing in advance of the event is telling us this is God at work. This is God's work. Humanly, that would be very hard to see in the event itself. But in advance, it's clearer. As so often happens in Scripture, God announces in advance what he's going to do so that when it happens, we are clear who, why, and what is really going on. And so the chariots of Babylon and the Medes will come madly through the streets and rushing through the squares, gleaming like torches, darting like lightning. This urgent way of writing here, these short little clauses are creating a sense of the havoc of warfare, dashing to and fro. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. People rushing to be part of this destruction of Assyria, it seems. And then the river gates are opened. Nineveh was on a river, and uh, the river was able to be dammed even in those days. And so the suggestion here, if there's a literal thing behind the poetry, is that maybe the Babylonians block the dam, let the water rise and rise behind it, and then they open it to flood the palace and the city. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped, she's carried off her slave girls, lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh, this great city with its walls, its impregnable nature. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. So much for its defense. So much for the human boasting of its impregnability of its mighty stronghold. It'll run away like water like a pool washed away. It's not going to stand. It's poetic language. Not everything may be exactly literal, but that's what's going on here. Nineveh, 
that great, great city will just be washed away, run away, flee away. Halt, halt, they cry. But none's going to turn back. The idea that the city is running away, that people are fleeing, people are abandoning it perhaps, or just that the city itself is just falling down. We're drawn into the sort of chaos of Nineveh in these words here. Halt, halt, none turns back. Nineveh like a pool whose waters run away. It's as if Nineveh is wetting itself in fear at the enemy that is coming. Plunder the silver and the gold in verse 9. Because Nineveh was rich. Nineveh was astonishingly rich. Because after all, this is the world capital at the time. Assyria, unrivaled throughout the world, has brought in the riches from everywhere it's captured. Gold and silver in abundance, statues and all the the things they've plundered out of temples and palaces around the Middle Eastern world. Oh, it was oozing and dripping with wealth. And the Babylonians and the Medes, who are not named here, but that's who it eventually turned out to be, they'll plunder it, just like the Assyrians had plundered the countries that they'd uh, plundered already. And there's no end of the treasure. That was one of the boasts of Assyria. The astonishing wealth of that ancient city. A city that would be left in ruins. A city that would be emptied of all its treasure. Some of that treasure would have come from Thebes, from Egypt, that they'd only recently plundered at the time of Nahum speaking these words. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. That is that this great fortress city of Nineveh would be like quivering jelly, knees trembling, anguish in all his loins, and all the faces grow pale. Nineveh used to boast about the fear that it injected into the countries that it attacked. And here is the reverse. Here are the tables turned against this great city. The city for whom lions represented its strength. And in the British Museum, you can see some of the Assyrian lions that guarded different palaces to this day and in other museums around Europe as well. Where is the lion's den? Is a sort of mocking taunt. The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. Well, the lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. But that's past Where is the lion? It's gone, really. Because God is against them. And here is the key to understanding as verse 2 and echoing verse 2, making it doubly clear. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. In the end, it's not going to be the Medes and the Babylonians by themselves. It's not a political conquest. It is God. I am against you. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. The lion, the strength of Assyria, will be no more, because I, the Lord, will do this. I will cut off your prey from the earth. The emphasis on I, I, I. It's Yahweh, the God of Judah, little Judah, gathered around little Jerusalem. It's Yahweh who will do all this and bring down this mighty, mighty empire. 
Because we know that if God is against you, you cannot stand. It doesn't matter how mighty you are, how many twin towers you have, and how tall they are. If God is against you, you will not stand. It doesn't matter how strong the political strength is, how strong the dictator is, and they grip on power. If God is against you, you will not stand. You will not stand. And the voice of your messengers will be no longer heard. Perhaps those messengers from Nineveh who would go out to all the different countries conquered and neighbors demanding huge amounts of what was called tribute. Basically money to be paid so that we don't come and destroy you. And all through Israel's history and at a time in Judah's history, they would pay tribute to Assyria to keep them at arm's length, to keep the king on the throne. The evil kings, the bad kings, even the kings of Judah at this time, like the particularly notorious King Manasseh, he was paying massive tribute. He was basically an apostate king, grandfather of great King Josiah. At this very time when Nahum speaks, he's paying money to Assyria. What a waste. The messengers collecting the tribute, they will no longer be heard when Assyria finally falls. Well, this denunciation continues into the next chapter as well. In a way, it just flows on. It adds impact as we keep reading and keep reading descriptions that are fairly bloody and jarring and, uh, and, and confronting. Woe to the bloody city. Very Australian expression, that. All full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The city of Nineveh was a city of bloodshed. That's why it was great, because of all the battles that it had defeated. It's full of murder, and it's full of deceit, lies as well. Because Assyria had been making promises that they'd never kept. They were deceptive. Hard to imagine politics like that, isn't it? Where governments make promises and they're not kept. I say that as an Australian about Australia. You make your own mind up about wherever you come from. A corrupt regime full of lies, full of prey, that is booty, the treasures that it's plundered from elsewhere. But the battle will leave it a desolation. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse, the bounding chariot, the horseman charging, the flashing sword, the glittering spear, the, and the result, the hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. What a ghastly picture. But that's what Nineveh, that great city, will be like, and people will stumble over the bodies, so many will there be. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Probably here a reference to their idolatry, but also their treachery. The prostitute who's been deceiving and lying to the other countries in its political wheelings and dealings. It looks so graceful, but not really. They've betrayed nations with their whorings and people with her charms. And I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. And not only will he bring down its destruction, but he will actually mock 
and shame and ridicule Assyria. If you can imagine Nineveh or Assyria as a, as a woman, the prostitute woman, through deception and idolatry, I, God says in verse six, 5, will lift your skirts over your face and make nations look at your nakedness. It's almost obscene. But in a way, what's happening here again are the tables being turned for Assyria was so boastful and so proud in its victories, in its destruction and its, uh, its, its sort of uh, lack of dignity and its treatment of its uh, people conquered. And now God is going to do the same again back. Kingdoms will look at your shame. I'll throw filth at you and treat you with contempt, wasted uh, and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? The question's basically begging the answer, no one. There is nothing as sad as a funeral where nobody comes. I took one once where there were two people and they were there reluctantly and only because they felt they had to legally. They didn't like the person who died. Astonishing. Tragic. Desperately sad. And, and what's being said here is that this great Nineveh, the glory of the nation, the world capital, the place that people would have flocked to for tourism if there was tourism in those days, nobody will grieve its death at all. Desolate desolation. They won't be comforters. You can't even pay people to comfort you, as they did in the ancient world. You'd be paid sometimes to be a mourner, to grieve, to cry. None. None will do it. None at all. You see, Nineveh thought that it was the supreme, and it was so impregnable. But that's what Thebes thought. Thebes was an island in the Nile, basically. Capital of Egypt for 1,400 years, never conquered. They thought that they were safe. They would never fall. And so Nahum, or God through Nahum, is saying to Nineveh, are you better than Thebes? That is, you think you are. You are boasting that you are because you've just conquered it. Thebes sat by the Nile with water around her. That made her pretty safe. Her rampart was a sea and water her wall. It was an island. Half a mile wide was the Nile River where Thebes was. And Cush to the south... Egypt, Putin, the Libyans, the countries round about, they're all part of the helpers, the guard, to protect this massive and great city. And yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed. So Nineveh, you think now that you're greater than Thebes, but you're not. Your end will come. Don't think that you can boast in such power and safety and security. It won't happen. It won't happen at all. As Thebes fell, so will you, is the message of Nahum here. It sounds unbelievable, but in a way this helps us see politically that it was possible. Nobody thought that Thebes would ever fall. Assyria had done it. It added to their boast and their pride and their arrogance. But you will fall. You will fall one day. And so in verse 11, you also will be drunken. You will go into hiding like Thebes did. 
You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees. What a wonderful simile that is. A fortress, strong and mighty. We've been to castles. You've seen castles, ruins in England or somewhere. No doubt how safe and strong and mighty, how thick the walls are, how big the moats are, how safe they are. And this city, this fortress of Nineveh, it's like a fig tree. At the time of ripe fruit, you just shake it a little bit and down comes all the fruit. It's as if you could walk up to Nineveh and just touch it lightly and it will just all fall down like a sandcastle, or even weaker. What a ridiculous imagery. How much he's poking fun at the pride of Assyria. Behold, your troops are women. Now, don't be offended here, those of you who are female. But in a way, he's saying, you think your troops are mighty, but they're they're just like girls, really. I went to a boys' school. We used to mock one of the neighboring boys' school and call them fairies. (laughs) They were girls, we thought. I mean, it was part of our ridiculous mockery of another school. But that's what Nahum's doing, really. Look at all your troops. They're just like girls. They're just like girls. The gates of your land, they're wide open. Of course, literally, they would have been closed and guarded. But in effect, they're just wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege, that is, get ready. Because in the ancient world, cities would often be besieged, the major cities. And the way they fell quickly is if they had no water supply. So draw water for your siege, get ready. Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. But there the fire will devour you. And the sword will cut you off, it will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourself like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. Locusts and Grasshoppers could attack and devastate your crops, but they're hardly signs of military strength. You increased your merchants. Israel and Nineveh is wealthy because of its trade as well as its conquest, more than the stars of heaven. But what does a locust do? Spreads its wings and flies away. That is all that you think is going to keep you safe. All your troops and armed men, they're just like girls. They're just like locusts that are going to fly away. And your princes, those who are the equivalent of the Datuks and Tansris, those who are your political leaders, those who are your army commanders, those who have the power in your country, you rely on them, you think they'll save you and defend you, they're like grasshoppers. They're just going to fly away as well or jump away. They settle on fences in a day of cold, but when the sun rises, they fly away. That is, you turn up the heat of an enemy. Where are they gone? Where have gone all those who lead our country? They'll be running away first, and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds, that is, again, your political leaders, your ministers, your government, your kings and princes and noble people, O king of Assyria, your Your shepherds are asleep, and your nobles, they slumber, while your people are scattered. That is, don't rely on your army, don't rely on your defenses, don't rely on them. They're like like girls, they're like locusts, they're like grasshoppers, they're asleep, they're hopeless, they're, they're useless. There is no easing your hurt, and your wound is grievous. And all who hear the news about you, they're not going to grieve, because there'll be no one at your funeral 
All who hear the news about you, they'll clap. They'll cheer. They'll be delighted to see the fall of this great city, Nineveh. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. It's a big picture. It's a picture of mockery. But remember, it's an unbelievable picture in 660 BC. When Nineveh is its greatest power and strength, it was unimaginable that Nineveh and Assyria could fall. And within 50 years only, it did. For in 612 BC, in the final battle, Assyria was gone, totally. A sequence of battles through the 610s, city after city falling. The major cities that they thought were impregnable like Nineveh fell. They looked fearsome, but in the end they were just fearful. They looked terrifying, but in the end they're just terrified. And instead of fighting, they flee. Their leaders and everyone. And Nineveh is ruins. I could say that to this day, except that just in recent months, IS has destroyed the ruins of Nineveh. But God does what he says he's going to do, no matter how unlikely it is. As Nahum spoke these words, this seemed the most unlikely thing imaginable. But it happened, and soon, just 50 years. We may well cringe at some of the harshness of the pictures that Nahum is describing for us here. Is not God more compassionate than that, we might think? This is the city that God sent Jonah to. The city that seemed to offer some instantaneous repentance. But that was at least a century before. Didn't last for long. They've had their chance. They've spurned it. And the judgment of God then as today is a fearful thing. He's a jealous fire. It will be an awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you're so boastful and arrogant in your pride and power as Nineveh was, as so much in our world today is. We should not doubt that they deserved God's wrath. They did. This was a nation that not only committed but boasted in its atrocities as do nations today, as does IS or Boko Haram, as sometimes does the West as well. It was proud, it was merciless, it was evil, and ultimately opposed to the living God. And such practices always invite the judgment and the wrath of God, as they do today. We know that God is slow to anger, but anger does come, and angry he will be. And whatever in our world sets itself up in pride and boastfulness, opposed to the living God, boasting in its evil, boasting in its atrocities, boasting in its impregnability, whether that's nationalistic or simply a a segment of society with its anti-God pride, it will fall under the judgment and the wrath of the holy and living God. Maybe not immediately. Maybe sometimes not soon enough. 
but it will fall eventually. And notice and remember that this word of Nahum, though addressed to Nineveh and mocking Nineveh, is fundamentally a word to the people of God who feared the threat of Nineveh. Basically, the influence of Nineveh was spreading under the wicked king Manasseh at this time. But God is speaking to his people to trust God. Notice that Judah is never told, come on, rise up, get your army together, you're little, they're great, but I'm going to give you a great victory like Jericho again. Not at all. But the comfort of knowing that pagan enemies will fall, that God is sovereign, and that God will act in his time, and that God and God alone is our strength and our refuge. So wait. Wait with trust. Wait with longing. Wait with prayer. That God will bring his judgment against the evil, boastful atrocities of our world. And not merely the extremes like the IS, appalling evil, but all those regimes Governments, leaders, dictators, groups of society that with pride, with arrogance, set themselves up and boast but still deny the living God. It may not be immediate justice. God never promises that. But he does promise ultimate justice. And it will come as it came for Assyria here. For the boasts of Assyria then are echoed today around our world by countries we like and countries we don't. And God is opposed to all human boasting and pride that denies him a place. The confidence in human strength, in human ability and skill is ill-founded and dangerous in the end. For all its boasted pomp and show, it was basically temporary and frail. September 11 reminds us of that again. And though we can't be sure if the hand of God was saying something specific at that moment, it is a general reminder against the boasted pomp and show of our world. The Bible ends with a picture of a greater city. The destruction of the evil Babylon that we heard in the second reading. But then the city that is perfected by God himself. A truly eternal city and the only one. It is easy to doubt the activity of God in our world today. As we see the rise of militant Islam in various forms around our world. But as we see relatively medium regimes denying God and boasting, and we see within the West with its Christian heritage and influence the rise of groups of society boasting in their own ways of life or leadership or whatever that is simply a denial of the living God and the Bible. We see it all around ourselves. The mockery of Christianity is rising daily in our world but all stand under the judgment of the living God. Slow to anger, but coming. Coming to vent his anger. 
And we can have even more confidence that this is happening because we live this side of the cross. You see, if God is not coming in his son Jesus to judge the living and the, and the dead, to bring ultimate justice, to bring down the proud in their conceit, then the cross is merely a terrible tragedy. But because Jesus died for the sins of the world, we can have absolute and utter confidence that he is indeed coming to judge the living and the dead. Coming soon, maybe to our impatience not soon enough, but he's coming, and he's coming again. Let us pray, and I'll pray a prayer written by John Calvin. Grant, almighty God, that as we have now heard of punishments so dreadful, denounced on all tyrants and plunderers, that this warning may keep us within the limits of justice, so that none of us may abuse our power to oppress the innocent, but on the contrary strive to benefit one another and wholly regulate ourselves according to the rule of equity. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon.